This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is June Ho, interior designer and founder of the brand that bears his name. June's life story has been an incredible journey, one that took him all the way from Kuala Lumpur to Ames, Iowa. Today, he oversees a thriving design business in San Francisco, as well as a line of furniture, lighting, and textiles carried in top showrooms around the world, including a few of his own. I spoke with June about how he learned to stop listening to the market and trust his own vision, what's got to change about multi-line showrooms, and how he earned the nickname Mr. Overachiever. This podcast is brought to you by Atlanta Market, the premier gift, decor, and lifestyle market. Held semi-annually in January and July at America's Mart, Atlanta Market is the place to discover new resources and to connect with thousands of makers, manufacturers, and sales reps ready to help you get back to business. Source all your needs in one convenient location at Atlanta Market with thousands of brands that are presented across hundreds of showrooms and temporary exhibits, offering a curated, cross-category shopping experience with complementary product neighborhoods, including home decor, tabletop, housewares, fashion accessories, seasonal decor, and much more, and all to the trade only. To learn more and to pre-register for Summer Market, July 13th through the 19th, visit atlantamarket.com boh. The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. They've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, they strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. This is the story craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. Visit houseofroll.com to explore. And now, on with the show. You've mentioned to me in the past that both of your parents were teachers. It sounds sounds like your mother was very philosophical and and, and sort of thoughtful about things. It it, it seems as if she, she gave you so much sort of good advice as a, as a young man. What was, what was her background? What was her story? Uh, my mom was adopted. My dad lost his parents when he was, I think, five or six. So I think, you know, growing up, we have very little. I uh, remember we are not starving by any means, but I think my mother, especially my mother, she often save every penny that she can and wanted to travel the world. And once a year, they would take a big trip and they have traveled to almost every single continent and, and backpacking to Himalayas, you know, traveling throughout India. And so for a very young age, she always say to me, I say, June, you know, it's okay to be poor, but you have to be rich in experiences. And I think that's a huge influence on me. And so how did your how did your family wind up in Kuala Lumpur originally? Um it's from my great grandparents. I think they immigrate from the southern part of China. So, you know, growing up in a very diverse multicultural background. And Malaysia being such a small little country, 
So it's not like in America, you can say, oh, you know, I'm, I want to go and visit California or New York, and you will take on a flight for five hours. For us, a 45 minutes, it's a different country. Mm. I would say a huge population in Malaysia, they have traveled extensively. And that was such a priority for them, travel and having those experiences. Correct. I still remember uh, some of the things that my mom used to always say to me, even from a very young age, she will always say to me, well, someday, please try to find a way to get out of Malaysia, go as far as you can, and try to build a life for yourself. Well, and it sounded like, at least initially, they had a very specific future that they wanted for you in your in your book you're sort of charmingly outlined that your parents would have been perfectly happy for you to pursue interior design were it not for those obstacles called medicine law and engineering <laughs> so tell me tell me about what they what they wanted for you at first and and what you evolved into later well, like most Chinese family, they all wanted me to be the lawyer, the banker, the <laughs> accountant, the engineer, the doctors, anything that traditionally, professionally, they think that will have, quote unquote, a better future. And of course, little that I know, I actually kind of fail every single of those uh, subjects in school. And finally, my parents literally just gave out on me and say, you know, you're going to have to find your own way and do whatever you want to do. And I hope that you can make a life for yourself. And I took a drafting class. I don't even know what drafting was then. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was interesting enough that I started to build a passion for architecture, design, and I love about the drafting ability to create something two-dimensional or three-dimensional. And of course, at the time when I was like, what, 16 or 17, I don't even know that such thing called interior design. Growing up in Kuala Lumpur, um, I was not surrounded by beautiful architecture, classical architecture. I don't understand scale and proportion. I know none of those. But, you know, obviously, I've come a long way to <laughs> learn about all this. <laughs> well, it sounds like your mother was a, was a really good motivator for you. And I, and I loved the story that you told me of your first real experience with travel was your parents motivating you to get all A's in, in school. And I, and I wonder if you can just share with us briefly that, that story. When I was nine years old, uh, my parents say to me, and say, if you get all A's in school, I will take you with us on one of our trips. And I tried my hardest and got all <laughs> A's in school. And my parents actually took both me and my sister to Japan. And Japan was the very first country that I visited outside of Malaysia. And I remember it was my first time to actually board a, a plane. And uh, of course, we sit in the way back of the plane, you know, but being a child, you have no fear and you're kind of fearless. And I remember I wandering all the way to the front of the plane and got upstairs and I saw this beautiful piano bar and a lounge area. People are drinking champagne. And then I thought, wow, this could be my future. And I love <laughs> this fabulous life. And so I thought maybe I can be a pilot that I want to travel the world. And 
Of course, later I realized that giving my eyesight, I couldn't be a pilot. And, you know, when we landed in Tokyo, I remember vividly that it was the opening day of the Tokyo Disneyland. That was like a dream come true. I had an amazing time. And, you know, also the trip that really opened my eyes for beauty, uh, really understand what the world has to offer and uh, culture, the history. So that really has created a passion for me for both design and travel. It sounds like it had a, had a huge impact on you. But you did, as you were saying, you did enjoy drafting or, or what you knew of drafting at the time. And that ultimately was your way out of Malaysia and your ticket to the United States, ultimately, yes? 100%. Obviously, you know, being Japan was the only the country that I visited outside of Malaysia when i never been to America before. And I thought every city in America looks like New York City and Los Angeles because that's what we see um, on TV. And little that I know, when I landed in uh, Ames, Iowa, um, every time when I say I started my journey in America, in Ames, Iowa, people always look at me with a blank face and say, <laughs> how do you even end up in Ames, Iowa? But again, you know, I didn't know anything. I just thought that any city in America would look like New York City and speak very little English. When I landed there, Iowa State University, um, it's a very good school that who's really known for their engineering. At the time when I Started, they have about 30,000 students. Out of the 30,000, there was 10,000 is from Southeast Asia alone. So, and, and, is, and is that how, how Iowa State got on your, your radar in the first place? Do, do they have this tremendous age and outreach that they, that they do? Absolutely, because I think that's how they subsidize a, a lot of the state students. I and I still remember when you go to the U.S. Embassy in Kuala Lumpur, and they will throw you a huge boat. It's like thicker than a telephone boat with like all this list of university. You're completely overwhelmed. <laughs> and all you know is like, oh, my God, I'm going to a country that I have no you know, relative there, no friends, and I have to start a whole new life. It's like, where do I even begin? So, you know, very often, a lot of the students will just kind of go with where the friends are going. And because I mentioned earlier that most Asian family want their kids to be an engineer, to be a doctor, to be a lawyer. So given Iowa State University was known for engineering. So a lot of the Asian students came to Iowa for engineering. So I just kind of follow with the crowd. And, <laughs> you know, somebody recently said to me, it was funny, and said, oh, you, go to, you went to Ames. Is it because you opened the boat and start with an A? And that's why you just kind of pick where and how you landed in Ames, Iowa? That is what one wonders, because yeah. how you went from Malaysia to Ames, Iowa, is is a story in itself. But now I understand better. So, so there was a there was a huge group, there was a huge agent contingent that was yeah. going going to Ames because of their superior engineering school. And right. and so, did you in fact have friends that were going, or were you just sort of following along? You saw a big group going, and you said that that's for me. I kind of have a couple, I would say, senior 
you know, schoolmate from my school that actually decided to go there. And I just kind of say, okay, well, let's do it. And I found okay. out that they have a school of architecture. And then, of course, I still remember on the first day of the orientation, you know, all the overseas students supposed to stand, you know, in a circle and introduce themselves and talk about their majors and where they come from. And everyone is either mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, and you know, whatever. And then when it comes to me and I sit there and I say, I'm, I'm majoring in architecture and design, and the whole room just went silent. And you just look at me <laughs> like, what? <laughs> so they didn't even know what to make of that. No, they don't even know what to make of me. <laughs> it's interesting. Well, it is interesting. And how did that make you feel at the time? Well, it kind of made me feel very insecure and also very out of place. Hmm. Um, but my insecurity, I have turned that into my drive to be better. So when I was in school, I remember that when my professor would ask us to build model um, of a house, and I would say, you know, why build a house if you can build a skyscraper. And so I will build a skyscraper instead. And I will always push the boundary and I always want to be better and always hungry to learn. I think it has to do with my insecurity. And, you know, halfway into it, my classmate actually gave me a nickname called Mr. Overachiever. And given English is not my first language, I thought it was a compliment. Yeah. Um, I, I, <laughs> you, thought, you thought this is great. Thank you. Yes, I yeah. am Mr. Overachiever. Yes, I keep saying that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and not until later, I think a year and a half later, I decided to transfer to Chicago. And that's when I found out that all my classmates were so happy that I actually move away because I'm oh. actually making them look bad in front of the professor. So that's when I learned that Mr. Overachiever uh, is not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> when you choose to attend Atlanta Market, you're not only getting a hands-on personal experience, but you're also part of something more. A community of business owners, manufacturers, sales associates, buyers, creatives, and creators, all with a positive and energizing spirit. Get inspired by the fabrics, the colors, and the design-forward product displays on the showroom floors, and take those innovative ideas back to your customers and clients. Pre-register at atlantamarket.com boh, and join us this summer from July 13th through the 19th. And so did you bring that same energy and drive to Chicago? And, it, and is that what propelled you forward? Absolutely. I have the same drive. I remember shortly after transferring to Chicago, wandering on Michigan Avenue one day, and I found this amazing retail store named Korean Barrel. And I was like, this is the greatest things in life. And I was like, I have never experienced such beauty in the shop <laughs> and i remember between my fearless and my being a mr overachiever i i walk into the store and talk to the manager and say you know are you hiring can i actually work here funny enough that they actually hired me to literally stock the display shelving unit that run between the basement and you know just going up and down for three months 
during the Christmas season. I thought I was in heaven. But then I realized, I say, what's next? I mean, I cannot be just working in Crane and Barrow. And <laughs> someone introduced me to Merchandise Mark. And one day I walk in there and I was like, this is amazing. You have all these textile companies, showrooms and furniture. Again, I was like, reminded me like me nine years old in the, at the opening of the Disneyland in, in Japan. <laughs> I thought this is amazing. And I remember that I, I went to the 18th floor and talked to a showroom manager and on the spot, she offered me to be an assistant. And with that journey, it took me another two more months exploring in the buildings. And slowly I got another job to be a, a memo a person for a textile showroom on the sixth floor and on and on and continue with my work and my school. My teacher, me and her actually worked together on the projects, on the real project that she has. And then from there, graduated from school, I immediately got a job offer um, to work in a hospitality firm. But again, because of my relationship with my professor, um, one of them actually called me out completely out of the blue and said to me and say, June, you know, there's a job uh, in a company that I think is a perfect fit for you. They are looking for someone that who is educated in America, uh, understand the culture in Malaysia, speak the language, and they really want to open an office there because Malaysia was building the tallest building in the world, uh, the Petronas Tower designed by Cesar Pelli. And I was invited to have the interview with the company and I still remember I was so naive when into the, the interview and I say you know at the end of the interview the the, the CFO say to me and say you're hired. I, I want to hire you. I think you are perfect. I rejected the offer and I say, well, you know, I got another offer. Well, let me think about it. I really want to think about it. And you know, since I promised another company before this and I remember there was a weekend on a Friday and then Saturday he called me up. He said, you know, June, I'm going to give you a much better offer, but you must take the job. And I still rejected that offer. And finally, Sunday, he called me up again. He said, you know what, June, I'm going to make an offer that you cannot refuse. Long story short, I took the job. My job was working three months in Chicago and three months in Malaysia in the interiors of the tower. And, you know, I'm one of those persons that I never happy or content with what I have. And I realized that sitting in a cubicle, designing more cubicle, it's really not my calling. My calling is really what my mother has taught me, you know, growing up is to see the world, to experience the world. And how can I find a career that allows me to do that and still make a living? I decided to work for a big hospitality design firm. And that's when it brought me to San Francisco. Well, so and and did it did it make you nervous that this big hospitality job that brought you back to Kuala Lumpur did it make you feel like oh my goodness I'm I'm back here again and I'm and I'm supposed to be getting out of here? Well, I think it's a combination of both. Part of me feel really excited because this is a very high profile project and also allowed me to travel both. And one of the agreements that I have made with the company is that they must sponsor me to stay in America. And once I would say, there's only one smart thing that I have done uh, at the time, given <laughs> how little experience that I have had, I actually say to the company that if it doesn't work out, the condition is that you must send me back to Chicago. And that's one thing that they have agreed on. So I actually think that 
part of me felt like if things doesn't work out, what's come to us, I will be back to Chicago. You had an exit plan. Correct. Right. Uh, okay. On the other hand, of course, I often looking for what is next. Right. <laughs> From Crane Barrel to showrooms to merchandise mark to, you know, it's just always looking for next. So you, you ultimately go work for another hospitality firm yes. and, and that takes you to San Francisco. So, so tell me sort of what happens, what happens there. Well, it was very exciting then. Again, one of my first projects, I still remember, was a 900 rooms hotel in Japan. It, again, it brought somehow my life. It's always kind of bring me back to Japan. In- Japan pulls you back. Yeah. You know, 900 rooms hotel in Japan, followed by another uh, luxury hotels in Australia, in Hong Kong, in China. Um, those are all very glamorous. I suppose you know, another part of me that often hungry of learning what's next. Mm. And so it was completely a coincidence. Um, a colleague of mine at the time came to me and say, well, I have a friend in Taiwan who is a designer and have a client who is a very interesting client looking for someone that speak the language, understand the culture, but she wanted somebody that who's educated in America. Would you be interested partnering with him? Didn't even hesitate, and I say, absolutely. Well, never thought of how am I going to do it? Am I capable of doing it? None of those has occurred to me. All I know was opportunity present itself. I have to grab it and try my very best. So I did that. And, um, you know, at the same time, it was an interesting time. It was the late 90s. Um, the Asia economy have a downturn, um, giving the firm have so many projects that it's focusing in Asia market. It, it's very obvious it's come to a point that, you know, something has to change in the company. And so having this project was a great help. But the problem was, you know, I remember one afternoon uh, after my lunch, I came back and um, I was being called into a manager's office. And my manager said to me and said, June, through your colleague, we found out that you are moonlighting Uh-oh. with another job. And so therefore, you are fired. Still remember, I was devastated. I was uh, concerned, worried, angry. But one of the senior, interesting enough, one of the senior uh, project manager came to me and she's French and she said to me, she said, June, this could be the best thing ever happened to you. Of course, I couldn't listen to any of At the time, that's hard to hear. No, right? that doesn't, you know, <laughs> resonate with oh, me. Oh, thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. And all <laughs> I could think of is um, I was very scared because I have I lost my sponsorship, right. I lost my status in America, uh, what can I do to actually stay in this country and, and build a career for myself? Um, in the middle of weeks, I decided that with that only one project that I got, I started my own design studio, focusing 100% on that project, did the best I can. Thankfully, the client was very happy with the interior architecture work. Then, of course, after that, she came to me. She said, okay, now that we finished the interior architecture work, we need furniture. We need lighting. We need, you know, everything that go into that project. Well, and, and this is, I mean, let's really set this up because this is a major turning point in your, yeah. in your life. This is the start of your whole new career. So this, this client comes to you. Miss, Mrs. Ho, no relation, yeah. right? Yep. 
Mrs. Ho says to you, okay, now it's time for the interiors and, and, and and tell us what she, what she says to you. Well, she said to me, you know, all my rich friends, they all have the same furniture. They are either, you know, they're all the same brand. And I really wanted something that no one has. You know, it was very unusual for me, for, for her to come to me and say, you know, I want something no one has. Can you create something that, something new for me, something more original for me? Well, I never took a furniture class before. This is my only project. I couldn't say no. I couldn't afford to say no. So I thought, you know, at the time, I started to see some designers start creating furniture and brands for a lot of these major brands that we all know in High Point. And I thought to myself, you know what? If they could do it, I probably could do it too. And I'm Mr. Overachiever. Sure, yes, I could create a right. furniture yes, line. Exactly. I say, how difficult can it be? And I decided to did. I did maybe about thirty-five to forty watercolor, you know, rendering for her. Um, that ranged from sofa, chair, you know, all different kind of case goods to tables, all the way to lighting and carpets. So, create all of those. I showed it to her, and remember at the time you know, email and, and, and Zoom call, none of those exist. So all we can do is like sending FedEx or, or mail to them in, in Taiwan. To my surprise, she looked at all of those and she said to me, I love them all. Let's make all of them. I was like, shit, now what? <laughs> like, you know, doing a sketching and rendering or watercoloring, those are easy. Like making a piece of furniture and creating a, a prototype. I know not, none of these. I never even took a furniture class before. I don't even know how to build furniture. So June, had you gone through the exercise of imagining what was going to happen when you presented this to her? Had you thought about what if she does say, I want everything here? What was running through your mind? No, at the time, all I could remember was, I say, oh, you know, I'm trying my best to do this for her. Most <laughs> likely, she's going to say, I can't visualize any of this. Um, okay. I don't know what, you know, this is going to look like. You know, maybe let's just go back to the drawing board. Right. Let's just okay. pick something that, you know, I can see. Or let's just pick something that I can, you know, my friends will have and she will change her mind. But. I was shocked that she... But instead, she says, let's make it all. Yeah, let's make this all. <laughs> and thankfully, I was able to find someone in Southern California was willing to, to walk me through this entire process, creating prototyping, you know, making changes and explaining the construction of the seat cushion and the spring and the eight-way. And just the list go on. And um, I was completely overwhelmed. I mean, thankfully, it's my only project. So I can fully, 100% concentrate on that. You could devote yourself to it entirely. Yeah, devote myself 100% yeah. on it. So I remember she came to visit me in America. And then we went through the factory. We test on all these furniture, making changes. And during this entire process, completely out of the blue, I, I received a phone call. A phone call from a gentleman. You know, he said to me, he said, my name is Thomas. And... Um, I'm one of the top salesperson in the country, and I'm opening my own showroom. I heard you have a collection of furniture. Can I meet with you for lunch and possibly represent you? And by the way, West Week is coming up, so um, why don't we meet? You know, the following week. Again, 
when the opportunity present itself, I don't know where it's going to lead me to. I just thought that I'm just going to entertain that opportunity in front of me. I flew down to Los Angeles. We have lunch at the French Bistro on La Cienega. Um, <laughs> show him all the watercolor sketches that I have done um, to the, for the client. After the lunch, he looked at me and he said, okay, done. I'm representing you. Um, <laughs> And, and by the way, Westwick is coming in two months. My door will be open. And I looked at him and said, what do you need from me? He said, well, I need floor sample. I need um, price books, all kinds of stuff that I never even heard of. You know, not to mention, like, I don't even know how to execute any of this. Well, and, and we should explain for listeners that this turns out to be Thomas Lavin, right? And he's and he's yes. just about to, to open up his, his showroom. And yes. this is this is such an incredible story and he he's never seen a, a stitch of furniture from you right so it's no. it's all it's all just these watercolors yes and, and these these must be the most amazing watercolors and how did thomas even hear of this project how did he even know that you were working on these pieces well you know that was another gentleman that who used to import a lot of furniture from the philippines uh, into this factory and then do a lot of the finishing at this factory and during one of his site visit and he saw those prototyping and thought ah. you know really liking all those pieces and that's how but later on i found out who he was and i often say he's my angel i think without his recommendation uh, at the time my journey will be very different today i think because i never took an MBA before, so I never have a business plan. So I don't even know what will lead me to um, in the future. All I know was I just need to work hard and, and trying to build a life for myself. And, you know, hopefully I, I, the client will be very happy. Then I will have more projects and, you know, going from projects after projects. So, you know, it's interesting sometimes how life leads you to. Well, it's an amazing story. So, and, and as you said earlier, you didn't have a furniture background. You, you, you hadn't taken classes in this. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're sort of teaching your, yourself. You found somebody to sort of give you some, some guidance about construction and, and prototyping. But then in your book, you sort of poignantly talked about the fact that you sort of got this collection going. And it sounds like at some point you weren't getting sort of positive positive feedback about it or, or or you perhaps didn't think it was good enough so so tell me tell me what happened well i think for the first few years it, i mean it went well um i have grown tremendously within like two or three years time i have built from one thomas lavin showroom to i remember maybe four or five showrooms across the country but you know at the time i felt like i receive a lot of criticism saying that, you know, my design was not original enough, was not good enough. And growing up in Asia, we kind of thought that, you know, if there was a person that you look up to or the best thing you could do is trying to emulate them, trying to be inspired by them. Hmm. And, you know, I often thought that not only it's a great thing, but it's a respectful thing to do. At the beginning, I felt like my work is not that original and I felt like I need to be better. And who was telling you that were, were, were designers saying that to you or were showroom who, who, how were you getting this sort of negative feedback about your, about your work? I'm, I'm just curious. Well, 
I'm not going to name names, but certainly there's a, a lot of uh, you can you can you can name names, June. This is just <laughs> us talking. They are a lot of well-known people in the industry that I admire. Um, they have okay. said to me, "Oh, you know, this is looks like so and so. That looks like so and so." I remember at the time, my response always was, "I say the only difference is that person." Was never grown up in Asia and trying to inspire by the Asian culture and aesthetic. Me being the born and raised in Asia, and that is part of my blood, and that's really how I see、um, the design. But more importantly, I also see that I was very driven by the market. I was thinking, I trying to thinking about what what the market want and what the client want, and、mm. and I was very driven by them. And I say, as a creator or as a designer that's truly creative, you should be able to create something unique of your own, and to be able to tell a story, a more original story of your own. And so that's when I decided to make definite change,、um, not only with the quality of my product. I literally fire all my original factories that who produce my product. You did? Yeah, I did.、Um, because I look at, I ask around, I trying to、uh, fish for information that you know some of these bigger player has to consider the best product in the industry where they make their product, and I I found those source. Sources and I went to them and knocked on their door.、Um, it was a humbling experience, and they all was very kind to me. It was willing to, you know, teach me a lot of the knowledge that they have had. So I have changed all my entire production channel, and then on top of it, I felt like I need to come up more original design, and that's when I decided to. Combine my passion for travel and design, and create pieces and product that actually be able to tell a story, a more original story, and be able to connect with my client.、Um, I think that is really important. Otherwise, it's just another beautiful product out there. That, that that's so interesting that you that you sort of changed your 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 entire sort of production and 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 all of your sort of manufacturing partners. So where are you manufacturing now? Where has that journey sort of taken you? Well, I still manufacture a lot of those domestically.、Um, we work with some of the best from Midwest Chicago area all the way to California, Southern California area.、Um, we. Still manufacture、uh, a lot of the very complicated pieces in the northern part of Japan, and our textile today,、um, a lot of them are from Italy, from Belgium, from、uh, Germany. You know, I often say it. I like to pick places that I love to travel to again and again. Interesting, and and you you talked about sort of. Being able to better tell a story. So, what was the what was the story that you wanted to to tell, or or what was the more original look that you wanted to to present for yourself? You you were saying earlier you felt you were sort of copying perhaps other styles. What what did you want to be your style, your look? My design process really more than just taking. My photography, or the things that I see along the way, and trying to create my own version of that. But I think more importantly, very often I trying to take the experiences. You know, thinking about how can I recreate the experience. Like I remember giving you an example. I spent a lot of time in Africa, travel extensively, and I love the 
feeling and the experiences that you know sleeping in a tent under the in the nature and with the animals and how do i recreate that feeling and it's sometimes it's not so tangible process but when people started to see those photographs and and me explaining the experience and then combined with the product and that's when you connect with the people and be able to tell all these unique share all these unique stories the House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. They've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, they strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. This is the story craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. Visit houseofroll.com to explore. In addition to this incredible story with with Thomas Lavin and how that relationship began 20 some odd years ago, right? I mean, this was... 21 years. We (laughs) celebrated 20 years together last year. Yeah, that is, <laughs> that that is that is really remarkable. Well, and and you were also there in the in the early days uh, of some of the other sort of great Ryan Hughes and R Hughes and yes. and 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 his mom and 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 Stephen there uh, yes. and Holland and Sherry and 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 Brian Dicker and you've had a long standing relationship there. And I'm curious how you're you're thinking about the the multi line showroom model today and some of the challenges that I know it presents and what you're what you're thinking about as the world is sort of reopening now I'm I'm sure you're looking at the map and uh and thinking about all the different places you are tell me what you're thinking about well how I started this career I mentioned to you earlier I I, I think I have to think myself as a very passive vendor in many of these multi-line showroom up until I would say 2015 when I launched my Juno 5 collection and it was a collection that combined uh, created 15 new pieces uh, inspired by all my favorite continents which is Europe, South America and Africa as a continent and I remember at the time Jim um, who owns the New York Design uh, Jim Center, Druckmann. Sure. Jim Druckmann was mm. very generous and kind, and he kind of a mentor to me, and he offered me a huge space in the New York Design Center to launch my collection for free for two months. Now, in New York City, like who does that? <laughs> who gave you a who? A who does space? that? Yeah. Who else? But Jim yeah, Druckmann to would give do you. That. Two months for free. And I remember yeah. he said to me, the only condition is that I must make him proud. Whatever <laughs> the proud means at the time, I have no idea. But remember, my insecurity and my you know, hunger for always be better uh, is the driving force. And I was able to create a space that was really true to myself and be able to tell a story of the collection. And that was uniquely to us and it was the first time i was able to see how my client reacts to the space and share the story and it was a big success and that's when i realized that despite the years of success with my showroom in new york or in other city there is a 
bigger possibility out there. And, and that's when we open our first New York showroom, followed by our Chicago showroom. And since then, we can actually see how the showroom experiences actually influence our sales and the, and the product display with the client, you can see the client's purchase pattern. So back to your question about the model of a multi-line showrooms, it has changed so much over the years, but my thought is always when you have more than two dozen brands, it is very difficult to focus on everyone. Um, it is also very challenging to let each of the brand to tell their own story and to create um, individual unique brand experience in such a limited, expensive real estate. But having said that, thankfully, we have some really, really great showroom partners who allow us to shine, like some of the one that you have mentioned, like, you know, R. Hughes in Atlanta, sure. the Susie Hughes in San Francisco. Of course, I cannot forget about Thomas Lavin in Los Angeles, given that we have started this journey together. <laughs> Not only they created these beautiful spaces to let, to display our product, to let our product shine, but I think they also allow us, more importantly, you know, since 2015, they also allow us to hire our own sales force to travel the country, visit customers, to augment their talented sales force they already have in their showroom. And I think that's really important, um, working with our showroom closely to create unique pop-up, especially during the pandemic. For the last year and a half, we have created a lot of pop-up all over the country, um, you know, and organized some of the over-the-top events like Versailles last year. Right, one of the last events that people got to go to before COVID. That's right. And I think um, it's a way to engage our client. And I think as a brand, we cannot solely rely on the multi-line showroom passively. I think the, the keyword is passively, but must get on board actively to engage our customer together. I think that's the key. And we really is relying on each other to be successful. I'm wondering what pressures are coming up in the business today. I feel as if many companies are being pushed to be a, a much stronger presence digitally than they had been pre-COVID. And, and, and companies are looking at e-commerce in a, in a much more meaningful way. And with that comes this question of, of pricing transparency. And do we need to get out of our own way a little bit with, with sort of letting prices out there? What, what, what are you feeling? What's going on for you? I think a lot of time when we talk about digital channels, mainly we mean the e-commerce and the social medias and with product information, which the topic often also evolve around price, pricing transparency. Mm. Nowadays, the way I look at it is that it does not matter how rich is the end user or how famous are the designers and the architects. They all mix and match product from many retail brands, which is almost impossible to high prices and information. We as a brand um, have started to do some limited e-commerce um, and slowly expanding the option of being able to purchase certain product online. 
However, given our business is focusing mainly on high-end customization, almost like a couture furniture uh, collection, it is very challenging to work with someone who trying to customize a piece digitally without any professional knowledge. Mm. Um, you know, they, they have no idea what COM means. They don't even know where to pick the fabric. I think pricing transparency has become less and less an issue because we all know nowadays with a lot of the end user who can buy anything from anywhere, uh, but what makes the designers and architect unique is their ability to curate and to create a space with all these unique, beautiful products. And the end user should know the advantage of working with these talented individuals. They should, should be willing to pay for their expertise and, and their, you know, whatever markup that comes with the product. I think the pricing issue has become less and less an issue um, you know, over the years. More and more designer is charging a more professional fees. Well, so when you say it's becoming less and less, you, you, you mean that it's just becoming more accepted and, and, and that people assume that there's going to be greater pricing transparency? Yeah, I, I think so, because it's almost impossible to try to hide a price from someone and not right. to mention the stress that go into it and you know that what happened your client's going to find out one day and frankly that's really nothing to hide i mean it's a uh, information is out there pricing is out there well so can you imagine i mean you have a very strong digital partner i mean you have a very your 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 business partner we should tell listeners it, yeah. it, it, right is is very tech savvy and and has really helped helped you tremendously to, to sort of grow the, the the back of house operation for you, does he say to you, June? Let's let's just get some pricing up here on the website. Does he say, you know, we could just flick a switch and any minute that those prices could be there? Well, I wouldn't say let's put all the pricing <laughs> up there. I think not, we have not created, quite that. Uh, I I think we have created layers of roadblocks along the way that making sure that the customer who has access to those the professional. You know, I still want to uh, protect them in some way. What are they asking you for? Do they do they wish you would put pricing up there? Do they say, hey? I think more and more now, especially the younger generation, I, I don't mm-hmm. think they care or the mind that the pricing is being transparent and, and published on the website. I think they are still a, a segment of the older generation designers that might have you know, little concern, but even that is slowly going away. I think more importantly, they want to be able to at least register with us, showing us the, um, you know, the credential that they have and be able to log in and, and get all the information they needed to be able to do their work, especially remotely. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier, I, I'm lucky to have a very technology savvy partner uh, who who helped me tremendously to advance our technology in our business. Well, I mean, as you say, you you were incredibly fortunate that you found one another. And and in a way, he he so prepared you for this COVID time. So you... Unlike many others in the in the industry, you, you you were you were ready for this, and 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 you had digital solutions at a time where you couldn't be in front of people and when people couldn't get to showrooms and and all of that. But I'm I'm wondering now 
what should we look forward to? What, what is technology going to do for you next that we're, that we're going to see as, as, as transformational sort of coming out of this time? I think it's the automation. Um, mm. The automation for our order management, it's a huge undertaking. A huge part of our industry are still kind of very um, old-fashioned. <laughs> um, <I still laughs> to put remember, it nicely. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I still remember that, you know, the days that we go into a showroom, you know, grabbing a pad uh, and a pencil, trying to scribble all these little textile memos that we wanted. And, and I think he has took on a huge undertaking and, and done an amazing job to create it. Huge automation about three and a half years ago when we launched our textile, he created um, from scratch um, to work with a team of engineers to create a whole new seamless management system from um, our textile inventory, uh, ordering the textile with the, with the mill, controlling all the different dialogues, to the memo scanning, um, eliminated all these paper and pens writing. Um, mm. And then also do a lot of digitally uh, improve our CFA, the order tracking. Um, you know, a lot of time clients wanted to know, the showroom wanted to know, where's the order? Where are they shipped? What is the shipping? I mean, we are so used to company like Amazon that when you buy a, a pencil, a, a book, you can almost track on real time where the product uh, is and yeah. when it's arrived, when it's going to deliver. Um, so, you know, I think for the next few years, we will spend a lot of uh, energy and, and time and resources to really perfect a lot of these system to be able to dynamically tie in with our website, with allow us to update the content, everything to, to kind of improve the entire infrastructure. You mentioned Amazon, and I and I know that you've been expanding your your quick ship offerings. Is that something that clients are asking you more and more for? And is that is that an important next step for you? You're nodding your head, yes. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Especially during the um, you know COVID, yeah. everyone it's really focusing on their home. Um, they want to mm. create a much more you know more beautiful home in a much shorter amount of time. So um, a lot of designer is really uh, scrambling, looking for product they are in stock, you know, buy things off the floor, um, but still want to maintain certain level of uh, qualities and craftsmanship and, and uniqueness of the product. Um, otherwise, you're just going to look like everything else out there. Well, June, I, I, I've so enjoyed speaking with you and I, and I really appreciate you making the time and, and, and telling us all, all these great stories. So, so thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to, to see you again sometimes in New York. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can't wait. 200 Lex, we'll, we'll be there. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nikolaus and Caroline Burke and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.